Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're going to be looking at Romans 9, 22 to 33 this morning. So open your Bible to that passage. You know, 1974, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission engaged in a very diligent campaign to recall toys that it deemed to be dangerous for one reason or another. So many toys were taken off the shelf, and um, this commission got uh, so kind of excited about this that they ended up creating these little buttons, like safety first buttons, 80,000 buttons, and they distributed them to people so they could wear them on their lapel. And it turns out that all those buttons got recalled <laughs> because they weren't safe. Sharp edges, lead paint, they were a danger to children. Very surprising, not what you would expect. In 1926, there was a daredevil named Bobby Leach. This is a guy who had gone over Niagara Falls in a barrel. He had done a number of other kind of death-defying actions. And in 1926, the man slipped on an orange peel, injured his leg. His leg ended up having to be amputated, but gangrene set in and the man died from slipping on an orange peel. He defied death over and over again in all of these daredevil actions. But who would have expected that Bobby Leach would have died that way? In 1984, some of you might remember this more than these other two events, a man named Jim Fix, who was um, a runner, a health and fitness proponent. He lectured all over the country about how important it was to run and stay in health and maintain a healthy diet, and at the age of 52, he had a massive heart attack and died while running. Who would have expected that? Life is really unpredictable, isn't it? I mean, things happen in our lives that we would never be able to anticipate. Things happen in our lives that constantly surprise us. Many of you are in situations right now that you never would have predicted 5, 10, 15 years ago. And the gospel of Jesus Christ works in a very similar way. The gospel is, in many ways, surprising. It defies our expectations. It is beyond our ability to predict. It works in ways that confounds exactly what we would expect. And that's the gospel we're going to be talking about this morning. I'm calling it today, as we're going through the book of Romans, the upside-down gospel. We believe in a gospel that is topsy-turvy. I mean, it just reinvents the way we look at reality. It's unpredictable. There's a guy named Leon Morris that said, Grace is always an adventure. No man can say where grace will lead him. So as we get back here to Romans, we are going to consider how it is that the gospel defies our expectations, particularly in regard to who can expect 
to be accepted by God. That's the place where the gospel challenges us the most. The assumptions that we make about how God saves and who God saves and the way God saves, the actual gospel confounds that, challenges that, and turns it upside down. And that's what this passage is about here in Romans 9. Now, last week, you might have noticed that we left off in the middle of a verse. So, we quit in verse 23 as we were reviewing the doctrine of election. So, just to give a little context, we're going to begin in verse 22. We did look at that verse last week, but we're going to begin there in verse 22 and read until the end of the chapter to hear what Paul has to say to us about this upside-down gospel. So please stand now for the reading of God's Word. Romans 9, starting at verse 22. Paul says this, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Father, would you please join with the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit to encourage our souls to give us faith and to lift high the name of the one true God and Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is uh, an interesting passage and one that probably few of you have been looking at lately. Um, Here, again, is another good reason, I think, for going through books of the Bible the way we're doing here. Not only does it force you sometimes to deal with very difficult topics like we have been the last few weeks looking at the the, uh, doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, but it also forces you to look at passages like this that you might not even have known were in the Bible. I mean, probably very few of you have this passage on your refrigerator at home. Uh, Probably very few of you have committed this to memory lately. 
it's just one of these kind of obscure passages that are just very easy to just go right on past. But we're not going to go past it. We're going to look at it, see what it has to say. And it says something that I think is very fascinating and very interesting about this upside-down gospel and something that's very challenging and might even be a little offensive, honestly, to some of you here today. Just two points I'm going to show you from this passage um, this morning. And the first one is this. What Paul tells us here about the upside-down gospel is that non-religious people can be accepted by God. Non-religious people, what do I mean by that? I'm kind of pulling out that term just as a way of making it understandable uh, to us. In the text of Scripture, by non-religious, it would say Gentiles. Paul refers to them as Gentiles. That is, people who are outside the faith community, people who don't go to church, people who have no interest in God, people who live as if God doesn't exist, and maybe even people who um, live lives of very distinct unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, several chapters ago, Paul described uh, the unrighteous for us as people who are filled with envy, who commit murder, who are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, inventors of evil, haughty, boastful. That's the kind of people that Paul is describing when he refers to Gentiles, and that's what I'm calling non-religious people. But the point that Paul is making here is that those are exactly the kind of people that God accepts freely into his kingdom. That's a little bit upside down, isn't it? We wouldn't expect those kinds of people to be welcomed into the kingdom. But this is what Paul tells us. So, as a reminder, <clears throat> the beginning of chapter 9 began with a question that Paul was seeking to answer. And the question was this. How is it that so many Jews, so many members of the, nations of, of the nation of Israel could reject Jesus as Savior when God had made so many promises to Israel in the centuries before. And the question that Paul is thinking about is, does that mean that the promises of God have failed? God made all these promises to Israel, and now here's Israel rejecting Jesus and being kind of left out of the kingdom of God. So what does that say about all of those Old Testament promises? Chapter 9 is written basically to answer that question. And Paul gives one answer, which is by referring to the doctrine of election. And again, we've been looking at that over the last few weeks. And so basically what Paul is saying is, here's one answer to that question. God is sovereign, and he can save whomever he wants. He doesn't save people. He doesn't choose people. He doesn't elect people based on who they are or what they're going to do or what they're like. It's entirely up to his sovereign, gracious will. And so... Verses 6 through 23, Paul explained that. But the second thing he says here, as we get to the end of chapter 9, <clears throat> he points out in answer to that question this, and that is that it's always been the case, he says, even throughout the Old Testament, that the acceptance of non-religious people has been a very common thing for this God, the God of Israel. That this is something that he did in the Old Testament, and this is something that he said he was going to do in a greater way in the future. It's the kind of God that he's always been. And he said that this is the kind of thing he was going to do. So look at verse 23, and I'll show you how this comes out. 
of the text. Verse 23, again, he's kind of explaining <clears throat> election a little bit here, but at the end of verse 23, he talks about the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he, God, has prepared beforehand for glory. So he's talking about those that God has elected, who he has chosen to be recipients of his mercy. And then in verse 24, even us whom he has called. Who, who is this who, is, who have been elected, who have been chosen by God? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, from those outside the community of faith, from the so-called non-religious people, as I'm calling them here uh, in this message. Now, what Paul is about to do here in verse 25 is to quote from the prophet Hosea, who wrote seven, eight hundred years before the coming of Christ. And you might know the story of Hosea. We're told in that book that Hosea was commanded by God to marry a woman named Gomer, who was a very unfaithful, um, adulterous woman. So as a demonstration or an illustration of the grace of God, God commands uh, Hosea to marry Homer, and then Hosea and Homer have three children. The first child's name was Jezreel, and then the second two children are given kind of odd, strange names, but part of the reason this story is in the Bible is to teach a lesson to us. So the second child's name was No Mercy. That's what they named their kid. And the third child was named Not My People. And so that's kind of the background that Paul has in mind. And now look with me in verse 25. Paul quotes Hosea and says, As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What, what a bewildering, upside-down, confounding thing to hear. What Paul is doing is he's taking this passage and he's applying it to the Gentiles. He's saying that God has viewed the Gentiles as being a group of people that he would have said, you are not my people. You are not part of the faith community. And yet the day is going to come when I'm going to look at people who are not mine and I'm going to say, you are mine. You are my children. Non-religious people in the redemptive plan of God's grace are going to be people who are going to be flowing into the kingdom of God. So here's how it will work. People filled with envy and murder and haters of God, inventors of evil, haughty and boastful, they're living their lives, they act like God doesn't even exist, and then someone comes to them and says, do you know that there is a Savior named Jesus Christ who has come to die for sinners, and he laid down his life and paid the penalty for your sin, and he's risen from the dead, and he says if you will trust him, you can know God and be fully accepted by him and have all your sins forgiven. And these non-religious people who have been living their entire lives apart from God, their hearts leap with joy when they hear about Jesus. And they say, I want that Savior. I'll take him. I'll take him right now. I'll believe in him. Tell me what to do. And the person says, just believe in Jesus and, and you are in the kingdom. 
And they responded that way, and they became Christians. And immediately they went from being not my people to being people, to being God's people. It's a remarkable thing, and it's repeated over and over again in the Scriptures how this works. Uh, In the New Testament, Jesus, for instance, says this, people will come from east and west and north and south from all over the world from outside the nation of Israel, from outside the covenant community, and they're going to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, who will be first, and first, who will be last. The upside-down gospel. That's what Paul is telling us here. This is an answer to this question. Did the promises of God to the Jews fail because so many Jews are not believing in Christ? No, because this is what God has always said. This is how it's going to work. There's going to be all kinds of people outside the covenant community who are going to gladly come to faith in Jesus. Sometimes this is the way it is, isn't it? It's the people who have lived the most disobedient, rebellious, hell-bound lives that are the ones who become the most passionate and fervent servants of Jesus Christ. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Have you seen that happen? Maybe you're an example of that. Maybe, maybe you're one who was not my people. Well, most of us have been. Most of us are Gentiles here. We were all not God's people, and now, by God's grace, we are. There's so many examples we can think of. Um, Uh, Here's John Stott, who uh, quotes this way. He says, this is a marvelous reversal of fortunes. The outsiders have been welcomed inside, the aliens have become citizens, and the strangers are now beloved members of the family. Uh, That is just really exciting. That is just so cool that God works that way. Maybe some of you know who Madeline Murray O'Hare is one of the uh, leading atheists in American history. She started atheist organizations. She's the one who lobbied to get uh, the reading of the Bible removed from public schools. Um, Just a fervent, committed, devoted defier of God. And she had a son named William O'Hare who in 1980 became born again by the Spirit of God and is now a Baptist pastor who devotes a lot of his time helping Christians in Muslim and communist countries throughout the world. Who would have thought that? Who would have expected that to happen? When she learned that her son became a Christian, she said, I entirely repudiate him. For his faith. And he has committed an unforgivable sin. This is Dave Mustaine from the band Megadeth, thrash metal band. Used to practice uh, black magic um, as a child or a youngster, teenager. Got born again by the Spirit. Became a Christian. Is now a devoted follower of Jesus, has very careful regimens set out, still plays in the band, but a lot of bands in the thrash metal scene can tend to be a little occultic and practice 
satanic rituals of some sort in their lyrics and that kind of thing. Mustaine says that I'm not playing with any of those bands. I'm not interested in joining with them. But he still plays his music, but he's a follower of Jesus. Who would have expected that? <laughs> How about the Apostle Paul? He's probably the best example, isn't it? I mean, he's the one that was roaming about, persecuting the church, putting Christians in jail, standing behind the execution of Christians like Stephen is recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. And Paul himself said, I am the foremost of sinners. There is nobody worse than me, Paul said. There is nobody has committed worse crimes against the church than I have, and yet I have received mercy in the gospel. And of course, you know, we're reading that man's letter right now in Romans. Who would have thought that would happen? That God would take basically a terrorist and turn him into a Christian who has now, in the power of God's Spirit, written a large portion of our New Testament. Non-religious people can and often are accepted by God as they come to see the beauty of Jesus and receive him by faith. Who is it in your life, friends, that you're thinking about right now and that you're just convinced there's just no hope for this person or that person to come to faith? And your heart is heavy because you love these people and they defy God and they want no interest in him whatsoever. Maybe it's a, a son or a daughter, maybe a spouse, maybe a roommate or a brother or a sister, maybe a boss or a co-worker. And you're discouraged and you've given up. And quite frankly, you haven't prayed for him in a long time because you're just convinced God's not going to do it. God's not going to save that person. It's been too many years. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Iraqi students that Hannah just showed us a few moments ago came to saving faith in Jesus Christ? They've been brought up, probably most of them, in a Muslim culture. Our first reaction to that is no way. I mean, you know, how can they come to know Jesus? Look at the culture that they live in. Look at the things that they've been taught. Imagine if God started to save people who are fighting for ISIS right now, committed militant Islamic fundamentalists. Do you think God can do that? Do you think the gospel could get to those people and that God could save them and transform them and turn them into followers of Jesus? If you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that's ever going to happen, you don't understand how upside down the gospel is. You don't understand how God defies our expectations. You don't understand how God does the absolutely unpredictable thing for the sake of his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. He can do it. He can do it. Let's cry out to him to do it in your personal lives, in our nation, and across the world. Non-religious can be accepted by God. Non-religious people can be accepted by God. Second thing, religious people can be rejected by God. It's another topsy-turvy, upside-down aspect of the gospel. Now, by religious here, um, again, I'm referring to people of the nation of Israel, Jews, not to people who are truly saved. I'm not saying that a true Christian can be rejected by God. That can't happen. I'm talking about people who observe all the proper outward requirements, people who have their name on the membership role of a church or faith community, but whose hearts are far from God. People who insist on approaching God not 
according to God's terms, but according to their terms. But, but they're religious people. They believe in God. They're committed to congregation, maybe such as this. They pride themselves on their religiosity. But that's as far as it goes. What this passage tells us is that religious people can be reject, rejected by God. <clears throat> so again, recall the question that was uh, the reason for Paul writing chapter 9. The question is, did God's promise to the Jews fail? And again, as Paul goes on here, he's saying, no, they didn't fail because even in the Old Testament, you will find that members of the covenant community, Jewish people, members of the nation of Israel, which in the Old Testament was one and the same with the religious faith covenant community, what Paul tells us here is that even then, people who were part of that community were rejected by God. And so, the example he uses for us here is the book of Isaiah, and that starts in verse 27. Now, Isaiah also writing like seven or eight centuries before Jesus, and Isaiah talks about the rebellion of Israel against God. Uh, Isaiah calls them evildoers and godless. They neglected the poor in their community. The false prophets were teaching lies. And so God decided to send the nation of Assyria in to judge Israel and to send them into exile as a way of punishing them for their disobedience. And now look at verse 27, where Isaiah quotes Isaiah, excuse me, Paul quotes Isaiah 10. And he says this, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, the religious people, the faith community, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, in other words, that they be, there's a multitude of members of this community. There's thousands and thousands of them. They're everywhere. They're as much as the sand of the sea. Yet, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a small portion of them is God going to save? For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. He's going to judge them for their sin. And then in verse 29, he goes on and quotes another passage out of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 1. And it says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, I think that's referring to the remnant, if He had not been merciful to save a remnant, a small portion, we, that is Jews, the religious community, would have been basically like Sodom and Gomorrah that we would have been judged in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were. We would have been completely wiped out for our sin. That's what God would have done to the religious community if it weren't for the small remnant that he saved for himself. So God in his mercy, he's always saving people for himself. But the point here is that the large majority of the Jewish nation would have been rejected by God. Religious people can be rejected by God. It's not a new thing. We shouldn't be surprised that the Jewish people were rejecting Jesus because the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament were always rejecting God. So don't be surprised. So, verse 30 then. Here's where we get kind of Paul summing up the upside-down gospel. What shall we say then in response to these two Old Testament prophets that we've looked at? Here's, here's what we say. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a, righteous, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. In other words, 
the non-religious people, the people who were living apart from God, they didn't pursue righteousness. At one point, they didn't have any interest in godly things, and yet they achieved righteousness. And yet the religious people who were pursuing it because they were going through all these external outward obedience to rituals and various commands and rules, thinking that they were establishing their own righteousness, did not find it. They didn't reach it. They didn't make it. It wasn't enough. So why, why is this? How does this all kind of sum up? And we see this in verse 32, and here's kind of the linchpin of the whole passage. Why did the Jews not reach the law? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Because the Jews, and this is the way a lot of religious-minded people think, it's I'm just going to obey the law. I'm going to be a good religious person. I'm going to be a good church-going person. I'm going to try to treat my neighbor right. I'm going to obey. I'm going to be good. All my life, I'm going to be good. And when God looks at me on Judgment Day, He's going to say, you were a really good person. And so, yes, you can enter my kingdom. So it's so many people think. That's how so many people think it works. And that's how some of you might think it works. Sometimes the easiest people to reach are the non-religious people because they're so lost in their sin. Sometimes the hardest people to reach are church people, religious people. I mean, it's possible. There are people here in this room right now, and you're thinking, I'm, I am heaven-bound because I have been such a religious, morally upright, church-going person. And you've never stopped to consider that maybe you're not seeking acceptance with God the way God wants you to seek it. Because there's only one way to be right with God, and that is by faith. See, that's what Paul is saying. They didn't pursue it by faith. That was their problem. They, they didn't stop to consider how does God really prescribe that I should be accepted by God. You know, this is a real challenge to those who would say anybody who pursues God in any way that he or she wants is pretty much okay just as long as they're trying to worship some God. And every way to God is equally valid. I mean, it, so many people in our culture think that. But here's what, what Paul is saying is that the Jewish religious community, they had their way of pursuing God and they were wrong. They were misguided. They were trying to do it through their obedience and through law-keeping. And Paul says, it's not the way it's done. It's not the way it's done. Tim Keller says this, you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him either by breaking His rules, that would be the non-religious, or by keeping all of them diligently. It's the religious. It's a shocking statement, and it is. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Have you ever thought of that? If you're looking at that quote and you're thinking, that sounds like the most ludicrous thing I've ever seen. If you're thinking to yourself, that makes no sense to me. You know, it, it could be that you're a person who needs to rethink the way you think a person should be accepted by God. So you can, 
you, you, can, you can reject the rules of God and be condemned for that purpose, but you can also put yourself up as your own savior by obeying the rules of God so that you basically can save yourself. And that will get you rejected by God just as soon as the first. Something I say quite often, and, and I think it bears saying again, friends, we need to repent of our unrighteousness, yes, and we also need to repent of our righteousness. We need to repent of anything that we are clinging to to give us confidence that God is going to accept us besides the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the shedding of his blood for sinners. That's, that's, that's the only way that you can be accepted by God. And so Paul completes the, the passage here by talking about the stumbling stone, and that's referring to Jesus. Jesus is a stumbling stone. Because a lot of people hear that, and they're just so offended. It's such an affront to their pride. It's such an affront to the moral resume they've been building all their lives. And what the Bible is saying is that moral resume will do you no good whatsoever. You're not good enough, friends. You're not good enough. But Jesus is. Jesus is good enough, and he is the one that you need. So, we got to quit. Um, you know, if you've thought all your life that you're accepted by God because you're a good moral person, you need to rethink that. But, you know, friends, if you've thought to yourself, I could never be accepted by God because I'm too immoral of a person, you need to rethink that. <laughs> because as the passage ends, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God in heaven, we thank you for your word and um, for the blessing that it is to us. Um, save us from our self-reliance, save us from our religion, save us from our pride, and point us to Jesus the Savior. In his name we pray, amen.